out here in the perimeter, there are no stars. Out here, we is stoned, immaculate. Hello and welcome. This is The C86 Show. I'm David Eastall. As you know, we love a special guest. This week, it's going to be the turn of the East Anglian bass band. It was the Farmer's Boys, because I recently caught up with the bass player, Mark Kingston to find out more about life, love, poetry and all that other groovy stuff. Anyway, after several minutes of casual chat, which gets edited out, we got down to that very exciting subject that was the early formative years, indeed. And after boring Mark with mine, which was mostly glam from the early 70s, he replied, Mark, tell us now, tell us everything. Um, my Well, strangely, it was probably the same as yours. David Bowie, Starman, I think was the first... I can never remember if that was the first single I ever bought or it was Virginia Plain by Roxy Music. It was one of the two. I can't remember which one came first. Um, and that was probably because I'd seen them on top of the pops and they just stood out, you know. Um, so, yeah, I think it probably was Starman by David Bowie. I, so David Bowie and Roxy Music were my big thing. Yes. When I was, uh, well, I've got a couple of years on you, so we're talking 72 sort of, I sort of started to list buy music. Yeah. Um, yeah, it was glam, but it was, it was, I like glam. I like, you know, I mean, I won't deny, I like Gary Glitter and Sweet and Mud and all those things because it was great. But David Bowie and Roxy Music were just a bit more serious. Yeah. Uh, and I kind of, I was, I was drawn to them uh, yeah. more than say, the others. Um, so that was my, yeah, that was my, that was my early thing. Uh, and, I was, and I had a friend who gave me a tape of um, Transformer by Lou Reed about the same time. God, that's very uh, good, isn't it? That's yeah, I think, yeah, I think I had that on one side and there was a Roxy Music album on the other. That's what, that's what got me really into it. Um, it got me into albums, actually. That was the strange thing. I think that was what, what I liked about Bowie and Roxy Music. They were albums bands. Yes, interesting. Um, and, did, so, and were your family at all musical? Did they have a sort of musical bent? Not, you know, sort of passion. Not really. No, I mean, I we had um, we had a lot of Jim Reeves in the house, um, Jim Reeves. which was great. And uh, I mean, at the time, I hated it, <laughs> but I actually, I actually, um, I get it now. I get Jim Reeves. Um, yeah, things like that. We had, yeah, and then your obligatory Top of the Pops albums that were never the original artists. They were sort of. Oh, um, I know that was heartbreaking, actually, which, wasn't it? Which. Actually, I find really humorous now when I listen to them. Um, so th- it was that kind. Of, so no, they weren't really into. You know, they didn't. They weren't. They, they were just. We had a record player, and we had about five or six records in the cupboard, and that was it. You know, they, I, um, yeah. No, I was. No, we weren't. I. They weren't, it was just something I got into as a youngster, like the usual thing. You get into football, or you kind of stick with football. You get into music, and then you. It seems to be all always like one or the other. Sort of, yeah. You know, well, I suppose. Well, it's kind of interesting because coming from a vi- village in the middle of East Anglia, well, Suffolk, um, yeah, I mean, because my parents, you know, with the you know, working class parents, and I suppose when they got married in the late 50s, you know, I think they just sold everything just to sort of vaguely get a sort of a small place together because people didn't have debt in that day, in those days, particularly, they didn't borrow money. And so I think my dad had got rid of the record player and his Elvis Presley records and stuff like that. And it was only in the kind of early 70s, a record player appeared. And to be honest, 
one of them was Jim Reeves and it was like god yeah. but I was so excited we played it quite a lot so they have in, been ensconced in my mind but then they did get one of those um the top of the poppers sing the carpenters which I didn't realize it wasn't the carpenters but that album had a huge yeah. influence on the rest of my life because because yeah. I always thought the lyrics were like as a 10 year old I thought wow these are incredible so I always thought well if you like the carpenters you're definitely going to like Joy Division and the Smiths I mean you know the lyric the lyrical content you know I say goodbye to love no one seems to care if I should live or die. I mean, yeah, Curtis has, has, you know, would, you know, it's up there with Joy Division, really. But then it was interesting because my brother, who was seven years older than me, he was really into prog rock, and he suddenly introduced us to me to the world of Yes, Genesis, Wish Ben Ash, Mark James Harvest, and even the solo work of Rick Wakeman. And I was like, oh, this is amazing. Um, and there you well, go. That, that, yeah, that's the, that's the route I followed. I took that route. I. You know, I got into sort of the Bowie and Roxy stuff and Lou Reed, and then I I progressed onto the prog. Right. You know, uh, and I got heavily into prog rock and Genesis and King Crimson and Van de Graaff Generator. Uh, Did you also the... have a, a Deep Purple album and Black Sabbath? Um, I, I had... Um, yes, I did, actually. I did, I did although they weren't... Although I really love them now, I didn't then. Um, although I love Led Zeppelin, I didn't. I wasn't really a hard rock, if you know what I mean. I don't. I don't. So you could really call Led Zeppelin hard rock, but I. It was more the. I like the sort of twiddly, <laughs> self-indulgent stuff, the sort of airy fairy. Steve, uh, that's why I like Genesis because they were very English. It was a typically English sound, wasn't it? Yes, Oki, Oki, and it's. Um, you know, it was kind of village music, I think you can call it. It was, um, <laughs> which I, appealed to me. I, yeah, I just, you know, so I had all those. I had all the Genesis albums. And, so did it, was yeah. it the case, well, was it the case of the Peter Gabriel years, not Phil Collins? Oh, absolutely. Yeah, I, I turned my back on them when he left. Um, yeah. And, and I, so, so follow you, follow me, you just didn't, you didn't engage, did you? No, I, I think they did one album after... Peter Gabriel left and I kind of thought mm, it's all right but it's not quite the same and then it I just abandoned them I didn't <coughs> um I didn't go for it I mean I liked I liked the, I liked the um the Lamb Lies Down on Broadway was my favorite actually because it was just this sprawling great long bit of work and um it had a, and I had all the lyrics on the end because I was one of those people who liked to read all the lyrics while I listened to music yeah so um so was it I, the I case that, that you never bought any singles I did buy singles, yeah, I, d I did, but I sort of, when I first got into music, I bought singles, and then I stopped and I bought albums, and then when punk came along, I started buying singles again. So it was a sort of strange um, thing that, you know, so when punk came along, I just pretended I never liked Genesis. And it was, I think that's what people did, wasn't it? They yes. kind of hid their, hid their prog albums. <laughs> well, I Although I still, I've still got them. I've still got the ones I had when I yeah. was you know, in my teens. Well, my brother, I suppose he was born in the late 50s. I mean, he just, punk did not happen in his life at all. It was just like, no, that that does not exist. You know, that's not real music. I'm sticking with the prog. And, um, you know, have you listened to the latest Camel album and the solo yeah. work of Peter Gabriel? It was, it was, a, it was a funny thing because I wasn't, I wasn't really massively into punk. I was more into what followed it, which was more of the sort of art, new wave punk bands like wire and peruba and things like that whereas the, the sort of thrashy punk bands certainly the english ones didn't really interest me much although i like the damned but i i, I prefer the american ones they seem more interesting to me like 
television and Richard Hell and people like that. Talking um, heads. Yeah, talking heads. Or oh, talking heads. Yeah, exactly. I love talking heads. Um, and when 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 that also died down and people started to make you know bands like Wire and bands like that, um, I got really into that. Uh, you know those those sorts of groups. Uh, well, Joy Division as well um, were another one, but the early the sort of thrashy punk thing it was it was all right but it, I, I was i could take it or leave it frankly it was um i like the arty stuff <laughs> yes yeah. well, i was just too young for it so i was still sort of at that age where it just passed me by i was in metfield we, we couldn't even buy the records if you wanted to um so yep. that was never going to happen was it but then yep. 70 quite, so, quite lucky because i was brought up in brighton so i was i had a quite a I must say bohemian type sort of environment. It was a, I was living in Brighton. It was a city. I wasn't living in a, a, a village. So I, I, I was exposed to a lot of, um, it was easier, a lot more accessible. You know, we had a, we, I always remember in the middle of Brighton, we had a massive Virgin shop before Virgin megastores would come along. And so I'd spend hours in there just listening to music. You could go and put the headphones on, listen in a booth to. Yes. We had, King we had sort of Robin's Records, didn't we? And that legendary. Yes, uh, yeah, Robin's Records. Yeah, so um, yeah, so it was probably easier for me because I was living in. So know, when did you get a musical instrument? What was the moment that you thought, "Yes, I'm going to pick up a guitar, bass"? Um, strangely, I, I I actually tried my hand at key at playing a keyboard because I liked. I Rick thought that Rickman. was well, yeah. I, I, I just, yeah, I don't know why. I just, I bought like an electric piano thing and tried, and I never learned how to play it. And um, and then I remember my younger brother bought a bass guitar and um, used to fiddle around on it. And I thought, actually, this is all right. It's quite easy, actually. It, it, I found it really easy to play along to records. So I could, um, that's how I learned really. I just started playing along to, just put a record on and sort of doodle along to it, you know. And um, that's how I learned to play the bass guitar. So, um that was my first route into it, really. Um, yes. So what was, the, what was the first gig you ever went to? First gig I went to was Bebop Deluxe. At, oh, that's, that's on Stiff Records. Is it just Stiff Records? Uh, I don't know. They were quite sort of slightly arty. Um, they, were, they were sort of popular for about a year, I think. It, it was about 1976, I think it might have been. Mm-hmm. Uh, it, at the Brighton Dome, I remember it. It was the first gig I ever went to. It's um, so did you uh, go off to university after your O-levels and A-levels? No, I didn't. I, um, I went straight to work. I was, um, I was one of those who went to work at sort of the age of 16, um, fiddling around doing jobs and things. And... Um, Always, with always the threat of going to art school, that was my thing. I was going to go to art school, and um, and then the band thing sort of came along. And um, yes, so how did you find yeah. yourself from Brighton to the depths of Bungie? Um, my father was uh, always moving around because of his job. He was um, he'd get posted to different regional offices. I make it sound grand. It wasn't, Got it. Um, but, but, but so we ended up, we ended up in Norwich of all places. And, um, I remember just thinking I really liked it. I really liked the whole feel of Norwich and, um, they then moved on and I stayed basically. I was at the age where I just thought, no, I don't want to move around anymore. I'll stay in Norwich. And mm. 
that was probably about 1979, something like that. Uh, so I stayed in Norwich and I've been in this area ever since, really. Um, there you go. And it's yes, a, a, a significant year because 79, Thatcher gets in, the Conservative government are here with great force, yeah. aren't they? Just like now. Yeah, um, so um, it was the first election I the first election I voted in was the 1979. So yes, uh, and, that, and 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 there was this huge swing, and then we had the Falkland War, and then there was a huge amount of unemployment. So a lot of the bands I've interviewed, you know, so the classic indie bands, you know, all had this sort of oh we were unemployed, we did job seekers allowance, enterprise allowance schemes, um, you know, <coughs> sort of drunk a lot, took lots of smoked a lot then did a single John Peel plays it get the John Peel session and that's kind of like the classic kind of indie stuff of the 80s so so what happens with your kind of moment in the as the decade drifts into the 80s well we um it is very similar my story is very similar to that I spent long periods unemployed signing on all that sort of stuff hard up um and then playing in bands and things. The other guys in the band didn't. They all had jobs. Uh, one of them worked on a farm. The other guy had a. The other guy uh, worked at the hospital, and so so we were we were all sort of slightly different, not backgrounds, but we were just doing different things. And I was I was the one who was always hard up because I was unemployed. Right. Uh, uh, so. Yeah, uh, yeah, I remember the days you go along and sign on, and they'd ask you, "Have you done any work this week?" You know, and you, not no, not me, governor. Um, and you might have done a gig and got twenty quid or something, but you yes. wouldn't mention it, you know. Um, so yeah, that was that, that was it was the same kind of thing. It was exactly the same thing, as you say. We, you know, you make indie records, and then you um, you realise that, you know, to further to go any further, you need to give up your job. And yes, this is know, true. Before, because in, in interesting musically, because we had that punk period, I mean, it's kind of simplistic, and then you had the post punk world of you know, Wire, Gang of Four, Pair, Uru, mm. then you had the Nightingales and the Falls. So there was kind of a lot of things changing at that stage, and then yes. those early bands like of, of that period, like Simple Minds and U2 and Big Country. So there was this kind of moment that was kind of coming along. So you, you must have been right there, but I do always think that 83 was, was the year basically. I put indie pop down between the years of 83 to 87 because that's the years of the Smiths. Cause when they came along, it was like, okay, something's really mm. altered here. Haven't they? You know, there was suddenly that feeling that things had changed again. So had the, had you sort of formed the farmers boys before 83? Yes, we, we, we worked out the other day. We, we did our first gig exactly 40 years ago. It was the 40th anniversary of our first gig. I think last week, the week before, um, in a, in a tiny little uh, it was actually on it was actually we played our first gig on the royal wedding the evening of the royal wedding uh, the the pub the pub down the road from stan asked if we wanted to play we we it was the first gig uh yeah we'll play you know it's there, there was a royal wedding party in the pub and <laughs> the farmers boys did their first gig there it was only three of us at the time um and that was in yeah 1981 so Blimey, you were there yeah uh, and yeah, and what were you sort of, and had you written your own material, or were you starting to write your own material at this stage? Yeah, oh, it was all, it was all our own material. Yeah, it was. Um, oh no, we we never did. It never even occurred to us to do a cover. It was. Um, um, it was. It was. Uh, it was all our own stuff, and it, they were always about two minutes long. Yes. Uh, there was only there was three of us, so we had. 
um, we had a little tiny little blue drum machine. I always remember it was a little tiny little blue drum machine and it had two buttons on it. I think one of them was just on off. And I think the other one was just tempo. So, um, so we'd have that on an ironing board next to a tiny little Casio keyboard. And then, um, so we didn't have a drummer and then I played the bass and uh, another guy played the guitar. And that was, that really was, that was our sound. We just yeah. had this, and it wasn't, it was a drum machine that didn't sound like drums. <laughs> it was definitely a drum machine. Uh, it was quite relentless. Um, so that kind that defined our sound really. I mean, we, we, you know, we just had this boom, tsh, boom, tsh, boom, tsh, going on all the way through uh, with this sort of racket over the top. Um, and uh, yeah, that was, you know, we were, we were, we were very heavily influenced by, by, I mean, strangely, I was thinking about this. There was a, you might not recall, there's a record by Frank Hannaway and Michael Barkley. It was called At Home. Uh, it was one of those things on fast records. I mean, you'd have to look it up. Yes. Uh, but it, it is a wonderful record because it's, it's got about three songs on it. I think one track on side one. And it's just one guy playing all this discordant guitar and another guy playing a Farfisa organ. Um, with a sort of a drum beat with a drum machine uh, and that really influenced us I mean we all love that and um, I still love it I still you know I, I mean I've got it on vinyl I don't think you can get it on CD I mean I, if I could get it I would I would get it but um, it was a great and that, that influenced us you know that sound um, that stripe that slightly discordant guitar and, and that drum a drum beat that's not a drum not not a drum kit uh, because we used to rehearse in a tiny little room, so we didn't have you know yeah. tiny little rooms, um, and that was that was really it. So yeah, 1981 was the first. Um, was your was your first, moment with with the uh, first gig? The, I remember because yeah, I remember Charlie Higson turned up because uh, the Higsons uh, were about the same time. He came along. He did a review of it in the local paper. Actually, <laughs> <laughs> uh, gave us a nice review, which I thought was very sweet of him. So. Yes, well, that, that's that's a decent thing. Yes, the the fairy tale wedding. So, so had that that stage? Had you got the name of the band as well? Had had you sort of come up with that? Yeah, I mean, that was that was another strange one because um, I, I I didn't really know Baz the singer very long. Um, I knew the I knew the guitarist Stan. Uh, because he and I had sort of dabbled in a bit of music before that. And um, he just came up to me one night in a nightclub and said, I'm putting a band together. I'm going to call it the Farmer's Boys and I want you to play the bass. And I went, all right then. Uh, and that's how we started. It was, it was, it was really that simple. Right. And so I never, I never questioned the name of the band. I just, oh, that's what we're called. You know, and it was, I mean, a ridiculous name actually, because it, 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 caused us so many issues further down the line because it, it's it's not a name you take seriously uh but that's that's what it was and we just stuck with it so i i think he came up with it um and he just told me that's the name of the band and you're in it so yeah so it was the two of you who who formed the farmers boys on that what well was it, it was it, it the jackard yes we used to go to the jack on a lot um i don't know if you did you ever go there they yeah i did a few times. yeah it, it's a it's a it was, um, I spent was a lot of time with Jack. Yeah, you used to have to have a, you used to have to be a member and you could sign a guest in. I think that was, uh, so they made it like very exclusive, but it was just a dingy little club. Yeah. Um, oh yeah, uh, I did see a few bands there, actually. Yeah, they, they did have a lot of, uh, I mean, I saw some great bands there. I was, um, I'm trying to think, uh, you know, they had, 
you know bands like micro disney and people like that and um know, a lot yeah. of local bands played there as well but um yeah it was a really i mean we played there tons of times um and normally so how to you, how did you find baz by the way how did that happen I, i'm not entirely sure i think he was a he was a mate of a mate i think that's how it, these things come about and it's that pub culture thing where you meet people in a pub and then you know, oh he's yeah he's, he's he's a mate of mine and he he was already singing in a band he was he was already he he'd been in a band um uh, with the keyboard player strangely enough although the keyboard player didn't join us till later um and i didn't really know him he, he just he just turned actually that's a lie there was four of us when we first started we had the guy out of serious drinking on guitar right a guy called Andy who played guitar in, in serious drinking. He was with him. So we were four piece. Um, but before we did, ever did a gig, he left because he was at the UEA and he realized he was way behind with his work for his degree. So he had to go home to his parents and do some work. So um, he left the band because of that. So, and then he subsequently later formed serious drinking. So we were a four piece for a little while. And then we were three, three piece for quite a while, really. Um, it's just the three of us, and we just make this. Um, that we just make this racket in Stan's. He has a spare room in the back of his house, and we just sort of turn up and um, come up with did these you, bizarre. Yeah, at the time, did you feel like you were on a on a mission to sort of crack, you know, to be in a band and sort of do the whole band thing, as in release records and sort of get an album out and do tours? Did you look at it a bit like you too? Did you think that's it? This is going to be my life not remotely i mean i cannot and we never did even when we were on a major record label we didn't and it was uh to our detriment i hasten to add uh but no we um it was all about being with your mates and i think alcohol played a big part in it all so it was it was that just thing where you're out with your mates you're playing some music having a few drinks and you're probably just trying to impress your mates uh who would come and watch you but weren't that interested so um it was yeah, yeah you know they, they'd come along and but they all stay in the bar you know um but it was um no there was no um no ambition whatsoever it was we were just having fun with making music it was um you know it was no we didn't we, we were we weren't remotely ambitious i think it's fair to say <laughs> yeah but 82 i mean it's kind of interesting because you had that whole new new romantic scene that was going on as well didn't you which was yeah it was all very yeah. connected to the the face and all that kind of world of soft cell and Depeche Mode and then I suppose Human League. So did you, when you were listening to that sound, did that start to sort of creep into your own sort of kind of musical kind of influences? No, no. no. I mean, we were, as I say, we were listening to things like The Fall and, um, you know, the monochrome set, people like that. Um, the new romantic thing, we weren't remotely connected or listened to it or anything it was just um no it was it was it was you know indie music that we were sort of right yes you know, listening to. i think the fall were probably a massive infl- not i mean you know they're an influential band but uh, their attitude i think was quite um was quite refreshing um, yes. i mean i know we i remember once we did a gig in london and uh, we supported Malcolm McLaren's latest band. I can't remember. I think they were, I can't remember what they're called, but it, he was trying to form another Bow Wow Wow or something. And so we rocked up at this posh place in Baker Street and um, 
yeah, he hated us. <laughs> <laughs> he really hated us. Um, and uh, we didn't go down very well. But, you know, that, but that we, I always remember there's loads of people at the bar with sort of like car rugs over their shoulders, drinking cocktails. And um, we were like, we couldn't work out why they didn't sell any beer it was it was a funny experience so yeah that was closest that was the closest brush we ever had to new romantics yeah you needed you needed to sort of yeah um, up your fashion stakes on that one didn't you so 82 you you released three singles really quickly don't you which is um quite good going for a new band so what did i mean during that time you were on sort of various independent labels or bax records really weren't you Yes, well, what, what it was, the Higsons had released the single, and it had done it done actually very well. I can't, uh, I think it was called something like um, "I Don't Want to Live with Monkeys." I think it was called, um, and it was good. It was a really good single. And it, it was, you know, we were, we were all kind of like really impressed. They made a record, you know, a band from our town, um, and they sort of they used to come and watch us play, and we used to go and watch them play. So we kind of got to know each other, um, and then they they got after they i think when they made their first record they they had a little bit of a problem with the record label uh so they decided they were going to form their own make their own record label uh, i think it's called wap records right and, uh, so they they brought a single out at the same time as we brought our first one they said look you can put a record out on our label so which was i think via bax records in norwich um who were like a distributor so the first, yeah, the first record was, I mean, Charlie did the, he did the sleeve and all that for us. And um, um, it was out on theirs. So it was, yeah, the first one. It was, and bizarrely, when we went to record it, the B side was going to be the A side. Um, I lack, well, I lack concentration. Uh, well, the first, the first single was called, I think I need help. And it was, it was a song that was, we'd written literally only probably about a week or so before we went in the recording studio. Uh, whereas the B side was going to be, was we thought was going to be the single. And then after we recorded, we thought, actually, this is all right, actually. So we decided to um, flip, flip the sides, if you like. So, yes. um, but yeah, it was, you know, it was a, a typical indie scratchy record, you know, recorded in a day at, um, in um, Ely, I think it was at Spacewood Studios, where oh Spacewood, it, I've done an interview with the guy who ran Spacewood from kind of in Cambridge, but then they had to move out of the terraced house to um, some other place. Yeah. But it's an a lot, of, yeah, a lot of indie bands recorded at Spacewood. So, um, and they had a guy there. I think his name was Joe. He was an engineer, and he was really good. He was really strict. So. He's like, you've got a day to do this. He wouldn't allow you to muck around. You wouldn't even allow, you know, if you started larking around, he's like, get in there and do that. You know, um, he was like a, a sort of a, a, a school teacher, but you'd come out, you'd come out after a day with an A and a B side, yes. um, you know, recorded and mixed because it, it was, I don't know, it'd be about 500 quid to do it. Um, so you didn't have a lot of time. You had to get in there and get out. And um, yeah, the first three singles recorded there you know and i think was that where gary newman did a lot of his stuff and um yeah probably was i mean it's oh we were always impressed because in the hallway they had all the record sleeves of all the bands who recorded there and they were all classic indie singles yeah it's all, all you know on the wall so it, it had it had real pedigree i mean they it, they did a lot of stuff and it was a lot of bands that weren't from all over the country i mean you had bands that were from sheffield going there to record and it wasn't just East Anglian bands or whatever it was um yeah no I, I I sort of I suppose actually I was doing this an interview with a guy who I think he was in a band 
called jellyfish. And funny enough, I mentioned where I was from and Farmer's Boys, because they're based in LA. And he went, oh, I love all the Farmer's Boys. And then he mentioned that studio, Spacewood Award, yeah. and, um, and just said, you know, everything that came from there, you know, he just loves, you know. So he definitely, I mean, late uh, studios do have a particular vibe, don't they? And a, dif- a different um, a quality. That yeah, they- ones, you know. I mean, there's always those fantastic documentaries about, is it Rockfield? You know, with the farm where everyone yeah. can go and, um, you know, residential studio, which has a yeah, that was, legendary. That was a great documentary. I really enjoyed that. But uh, Spacewood is, a, you know, it's a proper professional. I mean, it wasn't uh, it wasn't kind of ramshackle like uh, uh, Rockfield. It was it was it was a proper studio, but it it was just they just seemed to specialize in bands coming in just for the day and coming out with a record. It was one of those things. Um and the guy who, the engineer there was just really good at keeping you focused, you know, so you've got a day, stop messing around. Cause you, you know, you're just sitting around smoking, joking and you think, <laughs> no, you've come here to make a record. Um, so um, yeah, well, I mean, the first three were done there. And so how many did you, can you remember how many you got printed up or pressed? Um, I probably a thousand or so, some of that. Um, maybe, I don't think many more than that, probably about a thousand. Um, but it sold actually actually sold very well. Uh, bear in mind, nobody knew who we were. We were quite lucky because John Peel played it. Right. And, so the John um, Peel moment. Because that's yeah, the one thing he, I've noticed doing this is that there were these gatekeepers, which, you know, I suppose are both good and bad, unlike now, where there's no gatekeepers. But then you had, you know, like you had three music papers, didn't you? Weeklies, the yeah. NME, Melody Maker Sounds, and Record Mirror, which was like, for Americans, they go, my God, you had three of these you know publications yeah. so writers bands photographers all kind of could just throw stuff at this that these you know with a circulation of like nearly a hundred thousand i think and then you had john peel janice long kid jensen but john peel was just like you know suddenly you had that that kind of access not just to play in front of your friends and family and anybody else you can emotionally blackmail to see you in a gig suddenly you can go and tour Talking, he says, toy in a crowd. Yeah. You know, you suddenly because every city and town in the UK, and let's face it, it's a very small place, has a sort of alternative indie night, doesn't it? What it used to, and so you know, on a Monday, yeah. Tuesday, yeah. Wednesday, you could probably find yourself being booked at any of those kind of towns in in the Britain, really, because they mm. all had one. Even you know, from Norwich to Brighton to Edinburgh to you know Liverpool, Leeds, etc. You know, so it did kind of help bands, kind of feel like there was something going rather than saying, well, you know, what are we going to do next and twiddle our thumbs? It was always another kind of thing to aim for. Yeah, John Peel, I mean, John Peel was very, I mean, we owe him a lot, actually, because, um, yeah, he played he, he played the, the single quite a lot, you know, along with the Higsons. And I think our association with the Higsons probably was what introduced him to us, if you like, you know, because he liked the Higsons. Um and it's that usual thing. Then he gives he gives you a session. So then you do a John Peel session, and then before you know it, you've got people all over the country who have heard of you. So you know it. it um, thinking, looking back, there was without that, it would have been very difficult for bands to you know go and play in Liverpool and anybody know who you were. But we, <laughs> we can go and do you know. I always found it amazing. We go and do a gig in Liverpool and people know who you were, and that was because they heard you on John Peel. You know. Yes. Um, so, well, actually, there was a band from the bizarrely they're called the Nivens from Northumberland, not the ones from Norwich. And the, the guy Peter Martin, I did an interview with him, and he and they were in a you know he he formed a band, and he can remember the Farmers Boys really well playing at probably Newcastle or Sheffield or one of those places. He said, yeah, we you mm-hmm. know used to see them all the time. You know they were 
great band to see live. So actually, yeah, you're right. You know, you, you was like, oh, there's an indie night. Oh, there's a band playing. Who cares? It's one fifty. Let's go. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I, I mean, I yeah, and it was. Um, it's interesting. Yeah, it was. Um, it was. E- it was just. It was easy to get gigs because people, you know, they knew who you were. And, it, and if you did a session, they it wasn't just a single. They were new. They, there was a lot of people listened to. John Peel sessions, they were kind of, you know, quite a big thing, weren't they? And so can you repeat- remember much about your John Peel session at the Maidvale Studios? I do, yeah. Well, actually, it wasn't the first one we did. We actually did, we did a session for Kid Jensen. David did you Kid have Jensen. Del Griffith? Did he produce you? We did, yeah. Um, yeah and that was, the fir- that was the first one we did. We, we, the first one, we, the BBC session was actually for Kid Jensen. And I remember him and Peel making some joke about the fact that He'd beaten he'd beaten Peel to doing a session or whatever. They, you know, it was a bit of light-hearted sort of banter or whatever. But yeah, the first one was for because Kid Jensen really liked us. So we were that was the other thing. We were very lucky in that his program was before John Peel's. Yes. So Kid Jensen would play a record, and then you know the next show John Peel would play it. So we had good exposure. Um, you know. And as quite a few bands said, actually, though John Peel, you really want to be on the John Peel show. If you were on Janice Long or Kid Jensen, you had a bigger audience. <laughs> you, you did, yeah. Yeah. I mean, um, they, were, they was like, no, yeah. Kid. I mean, Kid Jensen was great to us. He, you know, he was very supportive, and um, you know, so we got a session on his and got a session on John Peel. So um, we were we were quite lucky, really. Um, and and that sort of um, and I always remember when you did a session at the BBC you got paid per musician. Um, you got, I don't know what it was, about 50 quid each or something. It's probably something like that. Yeah. So we would take a friend along and say he played the tambourine or something. And uh, <laughs> we'd take a mate along and they'd get paid as well. Um, Did you keep a recording of your John Peel and Kid Jensen sessions? Yeah, I've got, um, we've got the, well, funny enough, we did actually, we actually reissued them on a record a few years ago. So, um we did a sort of compilation thing and it's got some John Peel and you know, Kid Jensen stuff on that. Uh, but yeah, I've got, t- I've got cassettes. I've got boxes of tapes of farmer's boys gigs and um, which are probably unlistenable. Um, uh, yeah. And sessions and demo recordings and all sorts. That, um, so was that, yeah. that's 1982 progressed on and you were still doing your sort of on, you're still on indie labels. When did major record labels start to, uh, become interested well when we um i think by the time the third record um came out which was also an in- indie thing um we were starting to attract like always things bands attract a little bit of major label interest and i think what happened to a lot of bands you get oh we've got there's going to be a guy here tonight from Virgin Records or we're going to, you know, that was always, you know, whenever you did a gig, so there's going to be a, there's going to be an A&R man from so-and-so he's here. It never came to anything um, mm. to the point that we got very cynical about it. So when it, when people did say, Oh, was it? Yeah. Well, whatever. Don't really care. Um, and then I think the third, the third single CBS were interested in it. So they reissued it on CBS. Right. Um, bizarrely. And was that um, more than a dream? more than a dream. So there are, there are copies out there that are actually repressed. Um, I think it's sort of CBS records, although it still says backs, it, it, it they sort of distribute it. Yeah, probably um, on, so that was, for £10, aren't they? Are, are they? Okay. I'm just guessing. Yeah. And a fine. Oh my God. Uh, to be fair, I haven't, I lie. I actually, there's some records I haven't got anymore. So, um, 
you know, but anyway, so yeah, so we did that. And then um, there was a bit of interest from some labels and we could, yeah. I think that we fell into the trap a lot of bands do is that the more gigs you were doing around the country, the more you realised you couldn't work. You couldn't do a normal job anymore because, right. you know, you would do a gig in London and have to get back to go to work the following day. And um, so it became more and more obvious that, you know, having signing to a record, record, a major record label would give you an income so you could give up work, which is why, you know, people do it. Um, and EMI came along and offered us a, 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 a deal. So, we, 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 yeah, we didn't we didn't really think anything of it. We didn't even think it about EMI or anything like that. There was no, um, it was just it was a record label who wanted us, so um, we signed to them. Yes, and did you uh, in that classic way? Did you sort of read the contract? And go, oh, that's very good. Or did you go? Oh, who cares? Where's the pen? I I always remember when we had um, they gave us this huge great contract, and then they sent us to a music lawyer down the road in London from around the corner from me and my house or Manchester square, wherever it was. Right. So we were, we were sent along to see this music lawyer who then spent about three hours pouring over it. And every five minutes he picked the phone up and go, Nope, I'm not having that. And he put a line for it. Da, da. And we were just sort of sitting there bored. I mean, we didn't, you know, it, we, we kind of just trusted him that he was, you know, um, sorting this contract out. So, um, yeah, it would do. Yes. So is it the case then, do you own your music now or is it still owned by EMI? And because I mean, that's always a curious world, isn't it? Because there's a few, there's quite a few bands who say, like Carter, the unstoppable sex machine, he said, well, you know, he's like, well, you're massive. He said, yeah, but we, we owe the company millions still, or a lot of money. So I'll never own, own the music because they'll just say, you know, anything that comes their way, they'll go, oh, that's paying off some of your debt, you know, and a lot of people are a bit like that. So I just wondered if you ever got to the point where you went, oh, we actually own the records now, or is it just a bit complicated? No, I think what you do is you, you, you effectively deliver them a, a product, if you like. So, you, you know, they send you away to a recording studio and then you hand over the result of that. And um, and then I think when you look on records, it says original sound recordings owned by EMI Records. Um, so no, I mean we no, we don't own any of it. Um, um, and I don't know for how long they would own it. I mean, it's you know we're going back a long time, but um, no, I mean I, I know when we when the contract was terminated, we used to get statements saying we'd owed them God knows how much money. But it was effectively written off. But um, yes, yeah, it was still quite scary. Yeah. <laughs> uh, you know, it was thousands of pounds, <laughs> um, which they sort of, you know, put us in recording studios and things like that. And it was all, you know, it was all itemized in there on this. Yes, sort of, I know every you, PR every printout. Yeah, I know they, they, they've um, got all this sort of um, advertising, all the PR hours, and all that kind of stuff. So when yeah, you, I mean. When they, they, you own the you own the songs basically. I mean, if you, I mean, even then we had a complicated publishing deal where I think we had three different publishers. You know, so it, it was all a bit naive back then. You know, we didn't really, um, but we own the songs basically. So yeah, we've we all got a quarter percent of each song. So. so when you signed the contract, did you have the right? You need we've got twelve months. You've got to get get there, get right, and go to the Rumbra Buck and get yourself. You know. To, tracks quickly now and we'll put you in a studio in two months time i mean what was the kind of time span of your you know signing to delivering the goods well we had um we we obviously the first thing was to to do that first single for them 
Um, so the first thing they do is they hook you up with some kind of fancy producer, um, which they did. Um, he, and he was a very nice chap, you know, there's nothing wrong with him, but um, we were just another band he produced, you know, it was, you know, people had done someone else the week before. And, yes. Who was your uh, producer at that stage? It, it, I, I can't, I think his name was something like Peter Collins. He he did stuff for people like Musical Youth and uh, I can't remember who it was, people like Bell Stars, I think people like that. Right. Um, he, was, he, was, he was one of those flavour, flavour of the month producers at the time, uh, which is how record labels used to operate. They'd just go, oh, he's the popular producer. We'll try and get him. And, yes. Um, you know, um, and if well, you want it, to It's someone... interesting through the decades, you can see there's a real fashion, isn't there? Like you'd have Phil Spector, you had um, Mickey, Mickey Most, that kind of sound. And you thought, yeah. oh, yeah, he was, he was just like gold, wasn't he? And, they think, and then he stopped. What happened? And, you know, he's like, well, I don't know. Yeah, it, it, it was like, and I think it was because they were only as good as the hit they had, if you know what I mean. So, yeah. You know, I and think then in, got... and the and the 80s, you had the Trevor Horn production sound, didn't you? That you kind did, of like, yeah. okay, yeah. Trevor Horn, yeah. or you went from all the sort of the indie stuff, but it was very much like, it was very different, you know, like. Oh, 80s. no, we were, we were, we were put in a fancy, I think it was Psalm, I think the name was, it was, it was, it probably was actually something to do with Trevor Horn. I, I, I remember it being a very fancy studio and we were put in there and, um, I think we had to have a meeting with the producer first. That was the first thing. So pr- presumably for him to work out if he liked us or not. Um, but well, um, were you still doing the drum machine at this stage? Yes, we never. We didn't actually ever have a drummer until right towards the end. Uh, I mean, we had a. The drum machine wasn't really a problem in the eighties because everything. I think every record had a drum machine. If I'm being honest, because that was just the kind of, the sound. But uh, we we. What happens, we, when we were a three-piece, we bought a very, we didn't buy an elaborate drum machine. We had an upgrade, shall we say, and then realized we didn't know how to use it. Um, so we drafted in a friend of Baz's to operate the drum machine. That was his job. He was his job just to twiddle the knobs on the drum machine. So he became the fourth member of the band. Excellent. And then obviously he then started to play a bit of keyboards and he played a little bit of guitar. And then, yeah, it, we became a four-piece, uh, but we always had a drum machine. So even when we signed to EMI, we just we went out and bought a two thousand pound drum machine. You know, that was it was you know we just we just kept buying more expensive drum machines that were more complicated to, to operate. You know, if you imagine uh, the size of those manuals, they must have been frightening. Yeah, I mean, I, luckily the guy who used to do it in the uh, Frog, who was the keyboard player, he he knew none of us, none of the rest of us knew what we we're doing. I mean, it was his job to. Deal yeah. with it. Okay. He programmed all the drum beats. Yeah. Yeah. So there you go. So was it the case that you suddenly, you know, met the producer and thought, right, we still need to get an album together? Did you, as a unit, did you work and write quite cl- quickly and closely together? How did? What was your creative process? Um, well, we didn't. We we fell into the trap that lots of bands do when they make their first album. You've already got a load of material, haven't you? Normally, so you've got um because you've been doing yes. gigs you, you, you've invariably got about 10 songs or whatever uh or more so we were we had enough stuff to do an album uh so we weren't we weren't, we weren't really scratching around as such um so the first album was actually quite straightforward well i say straightforward it was it was it was okay it was um we had the songs, so we didn't have to we didn't have to write for that record we already had them if you like so um, yes there's one track I've been playing, Soft Drink, 
that's a kind yes. of it's an odd track on the album isn't it yes it's um it there is another version available on that that doesn't sound anything like it we did it on a compilation right uh, indie compilation album i think it was with a lot of other bands and um and then when we came to record it um I don't know. We got probably got to just get more confident, don't you? And it became yes. You get more, you know. You get sort of uh, use synthesizers a lot more. Uh, that's kind of how we ended up going a little bit. Um, um, and yeah, it's um, yeah, it's a funny song that one. <laughs> but um, <laughs> it was um, yeah, it's just uh, it's a lot going on in it. But uh, it was the, the the album was recorded in uh, very quickly. It was it was done on I think in somewhere like the Old Kent Road. We did it in about a week, and the, the, we didn't use the producer. The producer only did one single with us. I think he did two actually. Um, but when we came around to do the album, we just used his engineer, who we got to know. So he sort of, he sort of, um, he kind of, he didn't produce it because our keyboard player sort of produced it, if you like. He just sort of took over the role of um, being the person right. that was with the with the guy. And we we're quite happy letting him do that. So. Um, um, yeah, we didn't have uh, we didn't have a producer as such. It, it was an, an engineer and uh, one of the band sort of. Sort of um, and when that came, yeah. when when it got released in '83, this is "Get Out and Walk." I mean, what was the feeling like with the band at that stage? Because obviously, because I love going on about <laughs> the Smiths, you know, there was kind of this kind of sudden rise of the indie world of like you know, Morrissey and Ma, and then you had the June Brides and the Go-Betweens, and suddenly all, you know, all these kind of bands that suddenly sort of sprung out of every sort of city. I just wondered how you were sort of finding yourself fitting in, because you were quite shiny pop, weren't you? Well, I, I, I wouldn't say we were, but I think I think we were a bit sort of... Um, I think the trouble is, when, uh, during that time, there's there's always a pressure about having a hit single. You were if you didn't have a hit single, you were, you wouldn't last long on a, on a major record label. They would soon drop you. Um, so there was always a pressure of of you know. I remember. I think the first single we did for EMI, it just it, it just missed the top four. It was something. It got to about number, I don't know, fifty or something like that. It just was missed out on the top. You, and that was for you, wasn't it? The first, uh, yeah, I think it was. Or but it was, it, it was, yeah, they just missed out. But they were, so they, they were defined as failures, if you like, although they might have sold 30,000 copies. They were still, they were still seen as a failure yeah. uh, by the record label. I mean, if you sold 30,000 records now, you'd be laughing. Yeah. Uh, but back then, you, we were competing against the likes of Culture Club and Duran Duran, and they were regularly sell, selling um, a million records. So we were small fry, you know. Um, and to break into the top 40 back in the 80s, you had to sell a lot of records. Yeah. Um, did you have a ma- did you have any management at that stage? No, we didn't. We we had um we had some bizarre offers from different people. Um Pete Wartman wanted to be our manager. Nice. Bless him. Uh he was the executive producer on our first album. Excellent. And he would I don't quite know what that meant. It just meant he popped in now and then and said, you boys are right, anything you want, and then he'd disappear again. Um, and he'd take us out for a drink now and then or a meal. Um, he was he was an odd chap. He wanted to be our manager. And we thought, probably wrongly, that he was a bit of a wide boy and we didn't want to get anywhere near him. Um, and he didn't know what he was doing. But clearly he did know what he was doing. <laughs> um, so that was one instant. And then the other one we had, um, we, very, we came very close to having Andy 
Andy Kershaw as our manager. Wow. Well, he came and saw us in Leeds and gave us a load of, oh, you should do this, you should do that. He was you know, full of loads of great advice. And uh, so we said, oh, fair enough. Why don't you be our manager? And then when it got down to sort of talking money, it all get, got complicated and it didn't come to anything. So we had two brushes with management. <laughs> they yes. were the two, you know. Um, Pete Interesting. Waterman. You would probably would have gone for Andy Kershaw and that would have been the wrong answer, wouldn't it? Pete Waterman. Would have yes. Been gold, wouldn't it? Yeah. Well, I think, I think the thing we were worried about was that um, I think we were worried about the fact that he would have just jettisoned the rest of the band and kept the singer. Right. Uh, even then we had that feeling that he would might, might have done that. Um, he could have seen a, a sort of a male version of Kylie. Yeah, I think I think he I think he did like Baz's singing, and I think um, he probably more than he liked the rest of us. So we were I think we were probably vaguely aware of that that he was. Yes, you know, oh, those power struggles. Uh, and how was the it, band coping, kind of as as a unit? Were you cope? Because there's obviously a lot changing in like less than two years at this stage. You know, were you sort of holding it together? Yeah, we would. I would say that was a good. You know, we were having a lot. Of, we were doing. We were touring quite. I say quite a bit. We were touring. Uh, and we were doing our own gigs, so we weren't supporting anybody anymore. We were doing our own things. And the other um, thing is that you did videos, didn't you? I just I watched we did. some of your videos, and man, yeah, they were they're they're, they're, they're quite difficult watch. They are, <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, they're kind um, of they're you know I I wasn't you know I kept thinking of Adam Ant and one of them because they're quite flamboyant and big productions, aren't they? I mean, EMI must have said, yeah, you guys. Yeah, they did, they kind of they did throw a bit of money at it. Um, I mean, we weren't. You know, um, I think it's fair to say we didn't look like pop stars. Um, so it was probably, that was made all the more difficult. But yeah, they would um, send us away and do a video, um, you know, and in support of a singer. I don't know. I mean, they probably cost about 40 grand or something stupid like that, you know. Yeah. Um, I mean, it's a ridiculous amount of money for something like that. But um, yeah, we did we, we did all that, you know. Um, so they, you know, they did yeah, yeah, there was they, one which was very sort of, it was slightly camp, wasn't it? Yeah, I think we, is that the one where we're all dressed as waiters or something? I can't Possibly. I it, there was one yeah, with I lipstick think. and, you know. Oh, was, no, that was, uh, that was, uh, yeah, that was a different thing. That was, um, they decided to try and do videos on the cheap. <laughs> uh, and um, so they sent us to this club in London to do a video. Oh, there was another band, another EMI band, doing a so the, like they did us in the afternoon they did this other band in the morning you know we got, they got this cheap video crew to just do these music videos uh i think we were in the afternoon which was the mistake because we decided to get drunk in the morning right. and uh, we were just waiting around so um we got fairly inebriated and unfortunately um it shows in the video it's uh, <laughs> <laughs> it's, uh it's quite it's, it's not it's not very it's not pretty viewing um but, <laughs> Uh, and I think uh, the, the disappointing thing is that then when the record company got it, you could you could almost sense it's like, well, that was a waste of time, you know, because um, it, it was it wasn't a very good video. But um, I think we just treated it with a contempt it deserved, if I'm honest. Um, yeah, no, I suppose it was just at that time, and and it did have that. It was very kind of flamboyant and slightly. Yeah, it was all it was all jolly. It was very jolly. Yeah, I, we never enjoyed doing any of that thing. It it, it was. You know, anything like miming or doing, you know, or any kind of coordination or, you know. Dance I mean, there was routines. one video. Yeah, they had us all sort of in white suits trying to 
do some routine and we just couldn't do it you know we just didn't have it in us so it was um, yeah yes that must like, have been I'm kind not, of in yeah i'm not a fan of videos anyway so it was it, 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 yeah. It is a strange, it is a strange thing. We were obsessed with watching them because it was always difficult back then because you had to watch it live. And then you went, oh, that's fascinating. But then it's like, now you look back, you wouldn't bother watching them really. No, I mean, we, we, we were lucky in that we did a couple of programs, TV pro where we actually did play live. Yeah. And although you are absolutely petrified when you're doing it, um, I think that nervous sort of fear sort of it at least it makes you sort of a bit more interesting than just standing there i mean we did a load of tv where you just like mime along to the records and it was yeah it's very hard to look interested when you're doing that um whereas if you're playing live you're really concentrating on not making a mistake um so we yeah we did a, i think we did a couple of those no you know were quite um scary yeah no, so i could imagine yeah you know, yeah no i just kind of you know it's hard to it's hard to get them out of your mind. They're quite exciting, aren't they? They're of their time. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. But yeah, but that was eighty three. Then eighty four. So that album and that chapter closes. Then you come back with there's a whole load of exciting things because actually the single that the first single come, come that came out in eighty four I went and bought with Few Wow, which had a kind of a catchy chorus, didn't it? And it seems to be, you know, the band sounds very confident at this stage. Yeah, we had. Um... We had a stab at, I think we'd released a few singles and none of them had broken. I mean, they all just sort of hovered outside the top 40. And there was definitely a feeling that uh, the record company were getting edgy about us not having a hit single because I, I, I presume I think that's what they sold. They, they signed us for. Um, yes. And um, they did. So we, we did a, we did a, we did that cover of the Cliff Richard thing. Yeah, because it reminds uh, me, because I did an interview with old Miles Copeland, who did, um, obviously, The Police, and did lots of things before that, and then he start, set, started IRS Records, and I remember him, actually, it was when I did an interview with Doctor and the Medics, the guy from, you know, the main guy, and he'd sort of presented Miles with the album, and Miles at that stage in the early 80s did a classic kind of, you know, almost spinal tap, shouting, I can't hear a hit single, just, you know, swearing at him, go yeah. out and get a hit single and come back when you've done it, otherwise, you know, yeah. you're out, you know, and all that, and so they did, um, yeah, Spirit in the Sky, and he went, great, <laughs> good one, well, you guys. <laughs> you know, the, the, the thing is, when it comes off, it's great, but when it when it doesn't, you're, you're, you are left with egg on your face, and I know that when we, thinking back, it was probably actually not a great record to release, but we we just thought it was a really good tune. And I'm thinking we were quite, we were that naive that we didn't think of the implications of doing a Cliff Richard cover. It was just, that's a really good tune. Let's do it. And, um, it, that came very close to being a hit. And, um, so I think the record company were, and they put a lot of effort into sort of promoting it as well. I remember, and, uh, it just missed out. It, I mean, we were, I think we were going to go on top of the pops and then at the last minute, a band could do it, so we didn't do it, and then the rest is history. Um, so when we did that one that you refer to, few well, we'd we'd had we'd already been using another record producer, and he'd um, he was quite he was quite interesting. He was very thorough, and um, he was very good at getting the most out of you. I think it's fair to say. Um, and um, but we had the same problem where we just you know by the time we came to make an album we ended up using the engineer not the producer because 
the, the producers very difficult to get hold of back in those days. You know, you um, if you wanted to, you would say to a record label, I want this producer. And they go, yeah, fine. You can have him. He's available next year. And you think, well, I can't wait. Then. We can't wait till then. So <clears throat> you were almost given a short list of producers who were available at that time. Yes. Uh, you know, the producers were almost as big as the bands in some instances, I think, you know, certainly. It- um, yes, it's quite, yeah. yes, it must be tricky. Because actually also the lifestyle, you know, I mean, like I mentioned earlier, there's a sort of a narrative of a band, which I've got down to nearly four or five years with the classic, you know, especially at that period of, you know, getting together the John, you know, the single, the John Peel session, the first album, then the sort of sometimes the tricky second album for various reasons, which is sometimes the dynamic of the band and also just people feeling like really tired and also thinking I'm still really broke and I've been doing this for five years. I want to eat something proper for a change. <laughs> I, I, don't, I think it's fair to say it was probably different for us in that the, um, the second album was difficult because we just didn't have enough material, if I'm honest. We didn't put, we didn't put enough work into the songwriting we, we we were scratching around for material um, it's interesting because your second album the songs are all starting to creep into the the prog territory aren't they they're sort of quite they're getting quite long yeah we, we they were definitely more um well we just got a bit more confident you know and um that's what happens when you know you lose you, you sort of uh and also you you've got a producer there who's sort of you know and that, everything takes forever to do you know you're doing hundreds of takes of things so um you know when you're an indie band you've only got a day in the studio you've got a <laughs> you haven't got that time to sort of indulge us i mean i know when we had the second album you know you could say to the producer oh i really i like the idea of having a mellotron on this song and they'd go okay we'll go and get you one and that's what happens when you're on a major a major record label. But when you're an indie, you can't you you can't afford those indulgences. So, yeah, you know. Or I I like I'd like the sound of a sitar on this, and they would just go and get you one. You know. Oh, that's so good. You've got to um, go for the sitar, haven't you? Yeah. So your, uh, your your world fusion. Yeah, music. I mean, it just you you just they would in you know they would indulge you because it was you know that's what you did. So you could you could get quite complex with the sound. I mean, I I just think the the songs were. Um, they sounded like they were um uh they weren't as strong as the first album i think it's first not in, in my opinion only because um they were probably hidden hidden with a lot more production if you yes. know what I mean. did you um when you were recording it and sort of getting through it did you have a feeling that that was also the end of the, the band you know because some people say you know i knew you know I mean, some people are like really surprised that the album, they think this is great. And then it's, oh, the band finished. And other people are going, they kind of knew that everyone was like, just let's get it done and I'm moving on from this. How how was it with you guys? Well, I think, um, I think we were, I don't think we sensed that. I think we just sensed there was a, um, a frustration with the record label in that we weren't probably giving them what they wanted or, or, or giving them something they could work with more to the point. Um, you know, and it was that hit single. If you had a hit single, then you were fine. That just gave you breathing time. Yeah. And um, we didn't, we didn't do that. And so the single sales, they're always about the same. They're always sort of skirting outside the top 40. Um, and we were, you know, we're doing gigs. So we were quite, you know, we had no problem sort of playing somewhere and getting a crowd. That was, that was quite straightforward. Um, but we all sensed the record label were, just getting impatient with us, you know, and uh, not helped by the fact we didn't have management. So they were having to deal with us. And um, 
whereas we should have had someone really representing us sort of fighting our corner a bit if, if you like but yeah we just um did you um, did, did you get to play many gigs at this stage or was it just trying to get this sort of album done no we did a lot of gigs we did yeah we did a lot we, we, if anything we did more and more gigs um i think what we did find and if you're talking about when you sense the end of a band we found that we were doing we were gradually playing smaller venues so we would you know we would play london and do you know a big venue biggish and then i always remember when we started playing smaller venues in london like and we all sensed that oh was this now have we got to start all over again there's that sort of feeling oh we're gonna to have to start all over again yeah um and then obviously with the, the the record label sort of the looming inevitability of them dropping us so they all sort of fell at the same time really um and then when they did drop us and the um we were playing smaller venues it, that was a that was a point where we were starting to sort of think well you know you have to sort of have you got the energy to sort of um carry on if you know you know what i mean so um it's a strange thing but i didn't sense it when the, when, the, when we were doing the second album i just remember it took a long time and it was a lot of um you know we'd spend a whole day just doing a guitar bit you know and it was just um you know i mean i remember the singer and i would we would just go and play tennis all day there'd be a tennis court in the in the residential and we just play tennis all day you know with, with other bands who happen to be there you know like i mean i remember we were playing tennis with uriah heap and people like that excellent because we were bored you know and um <laughs> meanwhile the, meanwhile the guitarist is spending a day doing a guitar part you know so it's yeah there was there was a lot of just yeah a lot of time wasted you know um I suppose it's, it's like that Char Charlie Watts thing. I was going to say the Charlie Watts thing, you know. You know what? He's so right. You do spend so much time sitting around. And um, yeah, it's one of the I classic. Know, I think there was an also one of those Fleetwood Mac documentaries, John McPhee, you know, just had that look of like, God, you know, there's the, there's the sort of the two, you know, obviously the people who write the material who are doing their thing, which is quite hard work. But I'm just yeah. going to sit over here for months, possibly, when they've yeah, sorted their stuff out. I always found that because the bass parts were one of the first things to go down and the vocals were normally the last things to go down. So we had this period in the middle where the singer and I spent a lot of time together. <laughs> yes. So then in 85, the album comes out. What, what then sort of happens in, in terms of sales and also the, the, the sort of the, the end of the band? Um, I don't, I think the first album sold better than the second album, but I think um, they messed up on the first, I think the first album they ran out of, they hadn't pressed enough, enough copies. So it didn't meet the demand. And then of course it lost momentum. So it did, I think it did chart the first album and it, it you know, I think it was a, a top 50 album, whatever it was, uh, but they hadn't pressed enough copies. So then record shops ran out of them and then they took, forever to get them new copies and it all lost momentum yes. that's how i remember it um i'm not saying it was sold anymore but that that did that did happen i can't remember about the second i might i think it 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 just it sold modestly but um yeah it was it, it was we were also there was a there was a little bit of resistance with the music press because they felt that we'd sold our souls by signing to emi so there was that little bit of snobbery as well with the, with the music press at the time 
Um, well, that was kind of no one could understand it now, could they? But there was a really big thing about the independent labels and major. Oh, it, a few yeah, years yeah. later, when Sonic Youth were on, I think it was SST Records, and they signed to a major. You know, it's like, oh my God, they're going to sign to a major. You know, and it was like massive news. You know, we were like, do we want to listen and buy the new album, even though it's Sonic Youth and it'll probably be brilliant still? But it's on a major, and that's disgusting. They're evil. I, I find, I find it. Uh, yeah, now I find it. Oh, because I think with the history of EMI as such, you you would want to be on a label that you know gave you the Stones and people like that. So, uh, yeah, oh, sorry, the Beatles or whatever. So yes. I can't, I, I, you know. But back then they were <coughs> like there was, was the enemy, you know. I mean, well, also uh, I think there was the political, the anarcho-punk scene, and um, Chumbawamba yeah. and various people were bringing out. About how much they hate EMI, and you know the yes, fact. I yes. think there had been something yeah. to do with some either arms or some yeah arms. I think and and um, killing machines that they were investing in, and and I think they got associated with Thatcher's Britain, and it doesn't matter. Greed is good, and we you know mm. we're just going to make big money, and and I think anybody on EMI was like, oh my god, what's that? And um, you know, so, and obviously we're all a bit selective because I think David Bowie actually signed on the EMI for serious. Yeah, he did. I mean, even Talking Heads did. I mean, it, it, I, what I found really odd was that, it, it, that some major le- record labels were seen as quite trendy. I mean, Virgin Records, for example. Yes, very trendy. Um, but they, they were probably they all ended up being the same thing, if I remember rightly. So um, they all sort of swallowed each other. Um, yeah. Well, also um, there was yeah, a few, even, there was a few bands. There was um, the the Railway Children from Manchester, and also. Yes. Uh, the red guitars and they both signed for virgin and they and they hated it and i think they they went they went to the pub and went, i don't want to do this anymore because mm. you know, i just hate being on a major label it was like this is no fun so we're gonna quit so both they both both bands you know separately just just hated the experience so it didn't really matter i mean i i, I would stress that actually i wouldn't for one minute sit here and blame the record label for our demise or anything like that. I don't, I think we were the architects of our own downfall, if anything. I mean, we didn't take it seriously enough. Uh, I always remember they signed us and Kajagugu on the same day. And um, they put us together. I remember they, they sent a BBC film crew, uh, morning TV film crew in, talking about new bands or whatever. And yes. uh, they had us sitting next to Kajagugu on this settee. And... Uh, yeah you could tell we were two different bands um they but they were really driven you know in fairness to them i mean you know whether you like that sort of thing or not they were ambitious and driven and they got they they succeeded whereas we we just we all saw it as a bit of a laugh and um um quite surprised that it didn't i think you have to work at it is 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 the moral really um and we didn't and um in fairness to emi I can't really blame them. I mean, they, they just ran out of patience with us in the end. I think that's yes. what it was. Um, so can you remember the moment when you all agreed to um, call it a day? Yeah, yeah, I do. I think um, I think we'd we'd had that thing where obviously the money runs out, so that, that normally focuses your attention. <laughs> um, and yeah, uh, so, yeah, we were scratching around quite a bit and, uh, you know, we had people in the band doing two or three jobs and all that sort of thing, just trying to get by because you get dropped in the music. The money just doesn't come in anymore. Um, and I think we, it was quite interesting. I, th- I think Baz, the singer and I were, were, were disillusioned with it anyway, because we just didn't want to, we had a real thing about keyboards and synthesizers and 
um, we wanted to do guitar music. That was our thing. And so we were quite happy just to, for the band to split up. Whereas, and I think certainly the keyboard player wanted us to carry on. Um, I don't think he took it particularly well. Um, but yeah, we just, we just decided, I mean, we all met in a pub one night. We all came, we arrived at this pub separately and sat there and decided to split the band up. My God, was, what pub was um, that? It was in Homersfield in... Um, the Black Swan. Yeah, at the Black Swan. Absolutely, yeah. So we sat there. That's and, you, should, uh, you should get a blue plaque. Where the... <laughs> <laughs> yeah, here sat a band who split up. Um, <laughs> yeah. So, um, yeah, so we just decided that evening and then we all went our separate ways and um, oh we didn't talk to each other for a few weeks. But that was fine. I mean, uh, the, the singer and I were already kind of hatching a plan for another band. So we were we were quite excited about that. So we weren't we weren't that bothered about it, if, if, if I'm honest. But we were tra- we were sort of doing that in secret because we didn't want to upset the other guys. So we were sort of rehearsing with some other guys in another band. So this is uh, where the Avons appear. That that was the Avons, yeah. The so, Avons. Um, and they definitely played at that Charlie's bar, didn't they? In Bunch yes, we did. We, we we played there, yeah. And so I, did, I mean, we. I think with the Avons, they've you've got a uh, one of the tracks is is it on the because the Cherry Red record label they put out um they redid the c86 show didn't they as a triple cd box set for 66 yes they did and And i think it's a track on there isn't there there is i think it's um i think it's called is billy there i think is billy there that's the one Um, so yes and everything's going all right was the other kind of yeah that's it yeah so um i mean we so we would already i think baz and i the singer we'd we'd seen it was at a time when we had american bands coming over people like rain parade and the long riders and green on red and we loved all that it was you wanted the new psychedelic sound didn't you well it was it was it, it, there was that, but there was also a, there was a slight edge of country about it, which we also really loved. Um, we all love country music when we're in the Farmers Boys, um, even when it was really unfashionable, you know. Um, and then, uh, so I think we, Baz and I, it was just like, we don't want any synthesizers. We don't want drum machines. We want guitars and we want harmonies. And we, so, you know, we'd go and, you know, we listen to the birds and people like that and, so yeah, we it, it was it was our way of turning our back on all that sort of synth pop, which we just grew to hate effectively. Yes. Um, uh, so that was what that's why the Avon started. But we 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 kind of did it craft. We 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 started rehearsing before the Farmers Boys actually split up. So um, it was a God. yeah, it was a bit crafty really. But um, okay. where did so, you you had a new guitarist, didn't you? Who was a young. Yeah, yeah, he's really talented guy. Yeah, he used to he, he used to be a lodger of Baz's, and he was a very talented guitarist. And he listened. Um, he was a big f- sort of Rolling Stones fan, you know. Even though he was in his twenty, I mean, to love the Rolling Stones back in the eighties was also quite unfashionable. Um, and um, yeah, he loved all that, and he he was he was a really good songwriter. So it was quite interesting because we hooked up with him, and it just gave us a. a we had that sort of energy again that we had when we first started the Farmers Boys that we'd lost, you know, towards the end of the Farmers Boys, really. We just felt you'd go through the motions a bit. Um, so we really enjoyed it. Um, and we had no money or anything, but we, we, you know, we did lots of gigs and things and we really, um, we just enjoyed that kind of guitar-based music that we, you know, 
Uh, and did was, you, diff- was it the case that you formed your own record label at this stage? No, we had a we had a friend who we did actually have a friend who managed us, and, and he um, he worked for a record label up north, uh, and so it was. I think they would. He he he'd done something through them or something. It was. Um, I can't remember yeah. what the record label I was. seem to remember oh. Andy's Records put out a compilation, didn't they? Which now, I wish I'd done this before. But they featured, I'm sure, a track by you guys on it, didn't you? Andy's Records used to release the odd little bit and pieces there. So yeah. Much. So when you, because 86, you bring out the sort of, the, the kind of mini album and the sort of the four track, uh, a single, don't you? Four songs yes. and the music from the yeah. Three Rivers Reach. So was that the was was it kind of eighty six the lifespan of the the Avons at this stage? I think the Avons lasted probably a couple of years. Um, it was it was quite. Um, so yeah, we did that album, uh, and that's kind of how I got to know the uh, the guy. The recording studio was run by a guy who was in. You, you were saying earlier about the Nivens. Yes. Um, oh yes, the Nivens from Norfolk. Yes, the Nivens from Norfolk. Yes. Yeah, so, um, um, so yeah. So that's how we got to know him. And obviously, later on, I actually joined the Nivens, but uh, that's another story. Um, but um, yeah, so the, the Avon's recorded there, and um, yeah, I, I like the. You know, it, I, I would I would say that um, I, I I probably in many ways enjoyed that more than Farmers Boys actually because it was just good fun. Um, and, but, did they, and did the band kind of then, you know, was it just the fact that the four of you just thought that was fun, let's give it, let's give it a miss now? I was just kind of curious because actually, you know, you managed to get, um, was it Neil Taylor who was the one who put the C86 cassette together and he was also part of putting together the, the reissue decades later on Cherry Red Records. Did he yeah. get in touch with you and say, look, we love, we love that song, let's do it? Yeah, I, I can't remember how that came about, but we... Um... I, I think that's basically how. Yeah, I mean, we 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 did a. I think we did a we did a session for Andy Kershaw when he did, um, and I think there was, but I've never heard it, and I've never heard that session. Um, but I don't quite know how how this, 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 this that came about that compilation. I just remember that we had to give him the um, give him the original copy of something, and he, they they used it. I mean, bizarrely, we're actually now looking at remastering all that stuff and putting it out again so I'm in, I'm, so i'm in the process of now sort of trying to get that together so we just put it all together on one record and then... archive and we love our archive in here so what happened to the guitarist because i do vaguely remember seeing you live and i think i even went to school with him actually did he sort of go on to do music or was that the end of no that? not at, not at all i mean he um I mean, the Avons carried on. I mean, I left the Avons and they carried on for a little bit longer and then they sort of split up. Um, Hayden moved away. He moved away from the area. And I mean, I see him once in a blue moon. Um, I don't think he really plays anymore. It's a a huge waste, really, because he's a very talented guitarist. Um, But yeah, he just... I don't think he did anything else after that. He just sort of, you know hardly did any music really which is um which was a shame yes um, but then only 20 years ago you bring you come out with um actually because there's a 
You're single, don't you? It looks easy, hidden in the clouds, and the album, What Did We Do in Our Holiday? Which was so, so what is The Great Outdoors? Well, The Great Outdoors was um, strange. Um, it was really, it was the farmer's boys minus one person and a couple of other guys. It, it, it was, um, we I can't remember. We kind of lost touch with each other a bit with uh, Stan, the guitarist, and then he just said, oh, "I've I've got some. I've written some songs. Why don't we do something?" I mean, like you know, we went all right. And so Baz and I went, "Yeah, okay." Um, and that's really how it came about. So he he wrote quite a few of those songs, um, um, and then we got together with we we had an old mate who plays the keyboard, a guy called Justin, and a, and a drummer called Rob, who we'd known for years anyway. So they kind of. They joined us. Um, yeah, we we did a we we I think we did the first record on Fierce Panda. That's right. Yes. Um, so we 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 got involved with them, and we you know um, at I the have same time because because when I heard that was actually ninety nine, it looks easy, and then the follow up single Hidden the Hidden the Clouds. They're brilliant yeah. records, aren't they? They are just really good. I was like, oh, this is yeah, this is great pop. Rock, yeah, I mean we, yeah, I mean we, we were quite pleased with that record actually. That was quite a nice. It was a good album. Uh, it was a little bit in Congress because it was recorded over quite a period of time, so it, you could tell that some bits were recorded at different periods than others. But I thought the songs were quite strong, and um, it was quite good. It just got us back into music. We'd, we'd had a long laugh, and we and we and we really enjoyed it. And um, yeah, we did a few gigs and things, and. Um, so yeah, we did. We, I think we did three singles on an album, or four singles on an album. Yes. No. I. I, um, I sort of. I. You know. Yeah. I thought it was. And just... I, I. I remember we used to get reviews. Uh, I think the NME reviewed us once, and we we're just talking about how old we were, <laughs> <laughs> and uh, you know, like we were like some old boys, which we thought was really odd at the time. But it was. Yeah, there was. They were sort of obsessed about how old we were, you know, and. Um, God, that's so daft, really. But, yeah. It's very daft now, actually. But then, yeah. so what happens now after after your the great outdoors? Did you did you sort of keep music? Because are you in this latest band with the, the sort of? Yeah. So what we did is we did the great outdoors, and then I think the same thing as every other band. We then started to write a load of new songs for another record. And just ran out of steam, you know, the sort of enthusiasm. I mean, we all had kids and things and all that sort of stuff. So we had other distractions. Yes. Um, so we didn't have the luxury of just spending all day rehearsing. We, we you know, it was like once a week and, you know, for a couple of hours. So we stopped doing it. it. It sort of petered out. And then I think we got back together again and we formed a, a tribute, a 70s disco band. You probably don't know about this. Uh, but yeah, so we we just thought we'd have a bit of fun. So we learned all the disco 70s classics and we did lots of gigs and we had a wild time. It was great. And um, we dressed up and wigged up and all that sort of stuff. And um, so we did that for a few years. And so we, we, we were like a function band <laughs> um, and it was just fantastic fun. Really was um, seeing people get drunk and going wild, you know? Yeah. Um, it quite, it's quite an eye opener that you think actually you can spend all this time writing your songs and then, you just all you got to do is put a wig on and play Disco Inferno, and everyone loves you. So um, fantastic! But uh, yes, yeah, so we did that for a bit, and then I think Baz and I did a we did a little bit. We used to go and sit in the corner of a pub and sing, you know, just a couple of acoustics or whatever. 
so we did that for a few years um, just because we it was easy and um, and it was main we were doing mainly sort of a lot of country stuff and things like that so we were always looking to get a band together and um, we were going to get a band together with just people we didn't know and then it just so happened um, we just ended up using the guys we used before you know they, we just all came together I say use I mean we just came together as yes. Uh, it's, a, it's the same lineup, but just a different name. So, hence the McGuilty brothers started. And um, there you go. This is it. Uh, and here we are now. You know, we're on. We've got an album coming out, and you know, a single coming out. And uh, yeah, so it's yeah, so it seems to go around in waves, really. My God, but, that's, uh, a, that's, a, that's a life in music, isn't it? Even if it's not always. On it the is. Show. Yeah, I mean, we're still. You know, I like the fact that we're still doing it after forty years. Um, I like the fact, more importantly, I like the fact that we're still friends after 40 years. That's uh, amazing. And, you know, we're still really good friends. Um, and I think it's sad, it's sad to see, you know, when you see bands fall out over money and stuff like that, and they never talk, and they would have started all as good friends. And then yes. the business side of things just ruins all their relationship. Well, that didn't happen with us. We just, you know, when it all fell apart, we just carried on being friends, which is what we were before we started the band. So, yeah. Uh, yeah, it's quite so. The, the McGilly Brothers thing is quite nice because there's no no pressure. We just we do it at our own pace. Um, we've already done one album. It Second takes us ages. To, that came out in 2016. Yeah, 2016. Uh, we've spent. Then we then spent about a year making another record, and then junked it halfway through and started again. And then it was due to come out last year and then covid came along and so it it took over a year to make and then it took another year sitting on the shelf <laughs> <laughs> yeah so um, yeah I, I, nobody's waiting for our, you know it's not like the people are queuing up for it um so that's coming out now so um but yeah it's just really it, we just enjoy doing the music and you know writing songs and uh, it's just um you know just doing it, it it's uh, you know it's without the pressure you know, we just do it when we can. I mean, it, it it takes a long time because we only get together once a week, if that. And, yeah, absolutely. Uh, you know, whereas I think when we're in the Farmers Boys, we had the luxury of just, you. we could rehearse all day, but we didn't. We we would go to the pub <laughs> instead. We, you know? Yes, we had the option. <laughs> we had the option to, um, you know, really make use of it, and we we didn't. We abused it. Um, yes, this is this is easy to... Just one last thing, well, nearly... Um, so Baz Records in Hellsworth was that just Baz or the Farmers Boys side? No, that was no, that was his. That was that was his little shop. Right, um, yeah. He had for a while, yeah. Um, in the in the thoroughfare, I believe, and um, yeah, he'd had that. He didn't have it very long, but yeah, I I, I do. I, I remember a period where I'd say, "I want this album. Can you get it for me?" And then he'd just bring it along, and I'd give him some money. It was like you know, uh, but yeah, he had this little record shop, um, which was amazing, you know. Yeah. Yeah, so um, I think his nephew ran it for a bit as well. So, right, yeah, what, it's um, what happened to his nephew. I do remember a young chap in there. He was very cool. Uh, yeah, a, a, a good friend of ours called Simon, who sadly passed away last year. Um, yeah, um, mm. he was a, a lovely man, but yeah, no longer with us, I'm afraid. Jeezy, crazy, yeah. that's horrendous. So, look, yeah. just last question: If you could have said something to your like sixteen to eighteen-year-old self starting out, or you could have said something to them now, you know, like 
I know I often get this slightly muddled up. Um, but if it's, if you could have said something to that person back then, starting out, what you know, is there a few bullet points you would have just whispered in their ear? Well, it's it's funny because my son now plays, and he's he's kind of an aspiring musician and all that sort of thing. So I often say to him, look, you know, uh, to, to be fair to him, he works really hard at it. I mean, much more than we did. So he's got a work ethic for a start, which which I think you need to have. Really, you, uh, I think you get more out of it the more you put in. Is is the honest answer? And you know, some bands are lucky; they just sort of mess around and they kind of just they have success and. But I think you do have to you have to work it a bit, and I, I would I would say the the one thing I learned from it all is that we probably didn't take it seriously enough. Yes, if, if that makes sense. But without being pompous, you know. But just we um, we were given a really good opportunity. You know, not everybody gets signed to a major record label, and we kind of just abused it a bit, really. And um, so I, I I don't I don't. I don't always, as I said earlier, I don't always blame the record label. I think it was a bit of each. A, we were on the wrong label, and C, we didn't really know how to respond to it anyway. So it was, it was always, um, as if we'd have had a hit, it would have been different. You know, it, you know that maybe it would all been, but um, yes, it, it was a strange time. I mean, you were talking about the Smiths earlier. I mean, we were, we were constantly telling EMI, sign the Smiths, sign the Smiths, because they were signing loads of bands who weren't very they weren't really connecting with people of such. They were just, they were just signing the same band over and over again, you know, yeah. normally a duo or something like that. And we kept saying to them, look, you, you need sign a, a credible band like the Smiths. Um, and they did eventually, obviously, but then they, I think they split up soon after, but That's yeah, they were, they, they were just, it was a funny label. They were just, they, they just signed loads of bands and it was, it was, it was, you know, and most of them failed, you know? And, um, yes. Yeah. We are one of them, you know. So, Kajugugu. Uh, Kajugugu, yeah, bless them. But classic, uh, classic <laughs> they were, you know, they were, um, they were just a different band to us, you know. They were, um, they were perfect for them because they had the look and everything. Whereas I know when we had our little thing with them, did you, we all did you look about, at their bass player and think, mm, God, <laughs> I thought, yeah, I, I want that guy's hair. No, I, I, I remember thinking, I looked around at us and we were wearing donkey jackets and DM shoes and, and they were all wearing like outlandish sort of day glow you know whatever with their hair and i thought yeah we don't look like a band at all compared to them (laughs) but the irony is actually a few years later the house martins got away with it i mean yeah it was a strange thing we were you know they were kind of really doing what we were doing really the way they looked and everything and well i suppose all those kind of indie bands had a slightly you know walked off the street look from the wedding present yeah they all looked like they just stepped out the second hand shop didn't they there was it was all uh, very kind of red wedge and socialist workers party yeah. and, you know no one was taking it that serious mainly because it was kind of poverty when you see you know like the smiths or you look at everything but the girl it was kind of all secondhand clothes look you know and i think it, yeah, was, it was, kind of was genuinely yeah. secondhand clothes and army army you know those um, army and navy stores that we used to go yeah. to buy big I, 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 do, I do remember the record the record label did, did give us money to go and buy some clothes they, exactly. they actually gave us some money they said look here's some money, go and buy some nice clothes. <laughs> and I remember, I think, I think, um, I think Stan bought a pair of shoes and, and then that was it. The rest of us just spent it on. Booze. Sort of, yeah, basically. Yeah. So, um, you know, again, another example of um, just us being ungrateful. But um, it's amazing that John Peel did pick up on the band so much. And did he meet you once in the, the white horse in St. James? 
He probably did. I mean, he used to come and watch us at the, the there was a place in Norwich called the Gala Ballroom. Oh, yes. That's uh, where the Smiths now, played their first gig. They did, yeah. They, um, yes, they did, along with countless other bands. But yeah, I remember, and we used to play there a lot. With and So did the Higsons and all the other Norwich bands. And um, he used to pop along and he just, he was very pleasant. He was very nice. He was, you know, you know, um, and he would, and he would, he would say, you know, uh, you know, on the following week, he'd say, "Oh yeah, I went to see the Farmers Boys the other night." And so he would, he would, he was very supportive, and he would plug everything, you know. Um, but yeah, he was, he was, yeah, as I said earlier, he was just, um, he was very good to us, you know. Um, yes. Along with every loads of other bands, I mean, I think we can all say without him, it, it might. Have, I think the whole indie scene would have been a different. A different thing, I think. Um, yeah, I yes. Uh, I mean, it gave everybody something to work for for sort of, I don't know, four or five years, and then think, well, you know, that's it, really. Isn't yeah, well, it? I think it it created a like a subculture, didn't it? It was almost like you had chart music during the day on Radio One, and then you had this sort of. Then you had John Peel in the evening. You know, I think it was between ten and twelve, or wherever it was, and he would play anything. He would literally play anything. Um, yeah, well, I suppose that's where I heard people like the Copto Twins, but then I heard, you know, the Bundy Boys or Gregory Isaac or the very early would, Public yeah, Enemy. Yeah, or, 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 you know, Ivor Cutler or something Ivor like that. Cutler, yes, all those Welsh bands. Daft Boy. Yeah. Um, um, but, yes, that was it, all Bulgarian folk music or Napalm Death. And, um, yeah, yeah. It was but, like, you know, oh, interesting. <laughs> yeah, no, I, you know, I, I, I think, as I say, without him, I think it would have been a different landscape, but... Uh, Yes, it was. Yeah, so that's what, you know, that's, that was our kind of... Um, that's your, that's a great story. That's brilliant. Well, thank you, Mark. That's thanks. been fantastic for giving me the time for that. And um, <laughs> yes, you. that's been brilliant. And if you want, I can always send you the link and then you can always, you know, put it on one of your social media platforms. Right, my kids with it, yeah. Yes, I know, they'll, they'll laugh. Anyway, <laughs> but um, no, it's been great. Well, like, no, thank you very much, on, um, Yeah, reissuing your Avon stuff as well. That's, that's Yeah, I'm, I'm, I think what we'll probably do is... Um, uh, yeah, I've, I've managed to get it all sort of re. Most of it's redone, you know, remastered and what have you, um, because we only had uh, sort of vinyl copies and stuff like that. So it's all been. I've had a mate sort of had a look at it for me, um, and I think we'll at least it will go on Spotify or something like that. Or so. Uh, I mean, we the, the McGilty brothers are on, we, our stuff goes through Cherry Red, so we'll probably right. see if they were interested. You know, I mean, they're very supportive as well. Um, but I, yeah, I think it'd be nice to get the Avon stuff out because, um, oh, it'd be I'm fantastic. Quite proud of it, actually. It's quite some of it's really good, I think. So, well, it was brilliant. It got kind of put on one of those compilations, which I think would have sold quite a lot of copies, really. If it was the yeah. if it was the C86 one, I think they did print quite a lot, and I think they, yeah, you know, yeah. So, but, you know, people love that. Yeah, I, so I just think. It'd be nice to do that. Maybe who knows, might you, you know, get the guitarist out and do a gig, but, uh, I, can't see that happening unfortunately you'd have to find him we'd have to find him i think i've got a fake idea he lives in brighton now so um right now. yeah <laughs> <laughs> well at least at least you're still playing bass anyway so at least you're pretty good yeah yeah and i'm not getting any better <laughs> <laughs> oh, it's just details you know you don't want to get hung up on details do you really no exactly anyway yeah. look thanks ever so much and i'll, I'll no, um, thank you take care thank you okay yeah. thanks for, thanks for calling me thank you bye-bye, bye-bye. And that, dear listener, is how you end a conversation. I love leaving those bits in because they're so fumbly, like life. Anyway, a massive thank you to Mark Kingston from the Farmers Boys Avons and also the Great Outdoors 
a classic album. So, uh, and also you can find out more information, he probably mentioned it in the interview, about the McGuilty brothers. Anyway, go and um, look up Mark Kingston and you'll find him somewhere lurking in a doorway. Anyway, look, who cares? This has been David Eastall, The C86 Show. If you want to contact me, you can on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, do C86 Show. As long as it's nice and positive and groovy. Otherwise, <laughs> why bother? And also, all these interviews have been archived. You can find those on um, Spotify, iTunes, Podbean. There you go. Have a great day. Have a great week. Stay safe.